1: Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 125. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And now, even in the dog days of summer, now, more than any other time, now is still a time to stay vigilant. I was falsely accused of betraying my oath, of choosing my paycheck choosing my paycheck over my loyalty to the U.S. Constitution. Even as I defended the very democratic process that protected everyone in the hostile crowd. While I was at the Lower West Terrace at the Capitol, working with my fellow officers to prevent the breach
0: and restore order, the writers called me a traitor, a disgrace, and shouted that I,
1: I, an army veteran and a police officer, should be executed. January 6th was a dark day of treachery. And the testimony this week by brave police officers was terribly painful to watch and hear. But those brave testimonies by law enforcement heroes, some of whom are also combat veterans, was a moving, necessary and powerful display of true patriotism. These brave leaders and their actions on January 6th and their courage in testifying now should give us all some hope for the future of America, hope that we need badly now at this still dark time in our history. These officers are what true American heroism looks like. If you didn't see it, go back. I posted it all on Twitter. Watch learn, feel, and never forget, if you're not angry and outraged about that, you're not paying attention. And to the elected leaders who still oppose January 6 investigations and accountability, either you're with our law enforcement or you're against them. Either you're with America or you're against us. It's that simple. Our enemies are celebrating when they see us divided when they see us under attack, when they see our police officers facing racial epithets, facing punches, facing bullets. And as we process that testimony, and as many of us enjoy our summer vacations and our time away, remember that many of the January 6 terrorists are still at large. The FBI is arresting them almost daily. And they need your help tracking down many more. They need you to never forget. They need you to stay vigilant. But watch their testimony, absorb it, and commit to fighting for accountability. We can't let domestic terrorists that attack the Capitol get away with this. Not a single one. Help the FBI hunt them down and lock them up. And if you're feeling angry or helpless after watching Officer Dunn and the others testify, turn it into positive action. Share the FBI videos, Go to FBI.gov or follow the FBI on Twitter and share the shocking videos they've posted from the attacks on January 6th. Help them identify the people who assaulted law enforcement during those attacks. Find the video and share it with everyone in your social media network. Somebody knows these terrorists, and they are still at large. But our police officers aren't the only patriots under attack. Simone Biles... One of the greatest athletes of all time is also under attack by cowards and weaklings and dirtbags who question her toughness, question her courage, question her patriotism. She's a true patriot. She's an American badass, and she's an inspiration. And by stepping down and admitting that she's struggling with mental health issues, she's setting maybe the most powerful example she's ever set. She's showing that if you have a problem, if you're struggling, It's a sign of strength to reach out and ask for help. That's a message we've rammed home on this show for years, and a message that Simone Biles will send to millions of people around the world, and especially young people. And that impact will be far greater than any gold medal she ever gets at the Olympics. The Olympics are a definite highlight of this summer. A summer that's still filled with controversy and the rise of the Delta variant and continued political upheaval, but also, with glimmers of hope, inspiring stories coming out of the Olympics, a possible infrastructure deal in Washington, and my five-year-old son learned how to boogie board, and my two-year-old learned how to swim. Look for the light. It's out there to contrast the heat, and I'm going to continue to bring it to you with new episodes and new conversations throughout the summer and throughout the fall and for many years to come. A special shout-out to all our fearless Patreon members who continue to support this show and everything we're doing at Righteous Media. And get ready for much more light coming from Righteous Media with new shows coming this fall. But this summer, we're continuing to flash back to some of our best conversations of all time. And one in particular that brought tremendous light, inspiration, and fun to people all across the world that listen to this show was my conversation last March with the great Stephanie Rule host of MSNBC, mother, American success story, and really cool person. It was the second-to-last interview I did before COVID hit and shut down the city. Our conversation happened inside the legendary 30 Rock building, just down the hall from where she records her show. So whether you're in your car, riding on a bus, or going for a walk, I hope you enjoy this spark of a conversation, and it makes your summer just a little bit better. Here it is, my conversation with Stephanie Rule.
0: Stay vigilant and happy summer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, To take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
1: ladies and gentlemen angry americans around the country around the world welcome to a very special episode we pulled this out of the hat we're moving and shaking and we are inside the powerful machine that is NBC News. 30 Rock. 30 Rock. We are not in the car club. We are no longer in Hollywood. And with us, I am very, very happy to say the great and powerful Stephanie Rule.
2: Great to be here. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity.
1: I appreciate you coming on, especially right now. Can we talk about, before we got here, we just did a countdown.
2: So we did. So when I've only been in TV, you know, the last few years, I was in investment banking for 14 years and then I moved in, to television about eight years ago. And the first shoot I ever went on, um, like the first field shoot, the camera guy, just as we started it, clapped his hands and said, enjoy the ride. You know, right when you do a shoot, you know, they clap for sound. Clap, enjoy the ride. So I had no experience in television. And I thought that was like the news equivalent of like action. Ah. So... Everywhere I went, I would every time I went anywhere they'd be like you ready and I'd be like they'd give us a clap and every time I'd clap enjoy the ride. And finally like 2 years later someone's like is that like your signature? And I'm like I'm not I don't I don't know what you mean. And they're like what's well, this enjoy the ride? I'm like oh you know it's like action that's what they do in the news business except it wasn't it was just a random camera guy one odd Tuesday who said enjoy the ride and now I'm so superstitious I can't not so if I'm not on live TV, anything that's taped, I have to start it with "Enjoy the Ride."
1: I love it. Are you enjoying the ride? I don't know. We'll it's see. It's been and a hell of a ride today and this week.
2: I mean, of course. First of all, anyone who says they're not, who has the privilege of having my job, should go the hell home. Yeah. Every look where we are. We are inside Rockefeller Center in Thirty Rock. Being in this building is on people's bucket list. Okay. Yeah. Every day that I drive up. And yes, like when I look to the left and I see all those fans waiting to go to the Today Show and then I'm about to go in on the right to go into MSNBC, I do wonder why I ended up like in AP calculus that I'm failing out of when like spring break is right next to me. But... Yeah, I'm so lucky to be here.
1: You're not failing out. No, you're you're kind ahead. of mastering AP Calculus and Spring Break because you're able to break down AP Calculus <laughs> and keep it fun and cool and accessible. I'm trying. And and we've really flexed. People should know that before we set up, we had a very special magical touch. The great and powerful Harry Smith was in this room before we got here who joined us on this show in the first couple of sh- episodes and he actually helped us set up the shot. And gave me a lot of advice. He moved the chairs.
2: He's, I mean, when I even, Harry and my office is right near each other. Every time I see him, I cannot believe I know him. It's amazing.
1: He's an American treasure.
2: Without and you doubt. have
1: an office next to him. That's Without probably the best part Without of all doubt. of it, right? I
2: love, love, I he's love working there. He's
1: been a great mentor and role model to me. And he's been so helpful as we build this pod and build this company. Um, and when we, when we had Harry here, we asked him the same question I'll ask you. This is really, really, like we're winging this today. I ask every guest, what is your drink of choice? And you told me...
2: Well, first I said water, right. because this is a weekday, yes, yes. and I do have to pick my children yes, up. Yes, But if I didn't have to, I would go margarita all day, every day, and Sunday. And for me, I think that tequila is a, is a dividing alcohol that for some people, they believe they're allergic to it, or they are allergic to it. I mean, to me, tequila is like, right when you're about to go home, right when you're like, this this night's about to end... If you don't want it to end, tequila turns you up to eleven. Like I, I don't drink red wine. Like wine to me is like makes you feel like it makes me feel like a human cat. Like I don't want to go out. Like it makes me feel like like my tongue has fur on it. I hate it. Yeah. But like tequila, you're ready to go. It's
1: kind of like fuel injection. Totally. Right. Yes. Well, yes. we have. I don't expect you to drink this, but I want you, you know, to appreciate you, the fact. I said you. I wouldn't. I want you to appreciate I the fact had to that we tried. Children, But
2: now that it's here, well, it,
1: it, yeah. It, it has a weird color, but it is a tequila. It is a margarita. Um, it's delicious. Do you have a toast that you do? Because you seem like a person who might have a toast uh, that, is, that is uniquely Stephanie Ruhl. No,
2: Not a specific one, but every time I sit down to dinner with my family, so I have three kids, yep. and on Mondays, everybody eats dinner together, and on Fridays, everyone eats dinner together. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's a bit of a free-for-all, but my husband and I never go out on the same night during those three days. Like, somebody has to be home because there are three children that are offspring there. And when right. we sit down to dinner, we always start our dinner with roses and thorns. So everyone has to do worst part of your day, best part of your day. Because for me, like if you're a working parent, by the time you see your kids at five or six o'clock and you say like, oh, how was dinner? I mean, how was school? That's just this open-ended question. That they're like, fine. fine. You know, if you see, for me, if you see your kid's face at three o'clock, you know if they're upset, you know if they're hurt, you know if they're mad. But by five, they've forgotten it, they're fed, they don't want to go back to that. But when but when you ask everyone to give you their worst and their best, it's kind of this great equalizer. And it makes people think for a second and also connects everybody. So I don't have a I toast. Love I love that. But that's sort of my meal tradition.
1: We have a couple of traditions in our family that used to really aggravate my family, but now I think they've kind of bought in. And so one thing we do is as soon as we see each other, we say today's going to be a great day. We yeah. say, today's going to be a great day. Try to bring positivity. Try to appreciate what we have no matter where we are. Just kind of look at each other in that moment. And then we do family hug, which no matter, you know, whether grandma's in town, whoever, like, we do family hug. And, you know, sometimes everybody's all in on it. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes the baby's crying. But we do one family hug and just that moment together that's almost like a family meditation, just to have that connection and slow down but to is make so important.
2: It, we underestimate the value of of what it is for someone to feel loved, so I'm 44 years old, and every single day of my entire life, my mother Louise Rule calls me on the telephone. Even like I have lived in Africa, I've lived in Central America, I've lived in, no matter where I am. It places when she couldn't call me, she had she she had it written down, and so I would store letters. But every day she calls me on the phone and says, "Stephanie, you might not be." the smartest. You might not be the fastest. You might not be the tallest. You might not be the most beautiful. You might not be the smartest, but you are a great person and you can outwork anyone. And if you believe in yourself, you can do anything. And then she hangs up. And I took it for granted for all these years. And when I started doing uh, work with Girls Inc., which is a nonprofit in New York and other nonprofits around the advancement of women and girls, I realized what it's like when you don't have somebody that just says, I believe in you. And there's a huge difference between someone saying you're the best. I don't have anybody in my life right. that says I'm the best. Right. For, I mean, definitely not my mom. I mean, the, most of the calls I get, you wore that on TV today? <laughs> you with the patterns with a pattern? It's probably not that great. I get those calls um, from my
1: mom. I, I get mean, my calls always. from my mom. Absolutely.
2: I used to think, when I first was in television, I used to think my mom watched every day. Because she would call me every day and talk about, was my voice raspy? What I was wearing? Yep. And then one day we were out to lunch in Florida and we run into Kathy Lee Gifford. It was before I worked here. And she freaks out. I mean, it was like she was singing Lady Gaga and Elvis and Barbra Streisand like all wrapped in one. She's freaking out. Okay. So I introduced her to Kathy. I didn't even work here yet. And they start talking because Kathy Lee is the most gracious person you've Very ever met. Very gracious. But all of a sudden, my mom starts going on. And, like, my mom practically knew the rundown of, of Kathy Lee and Hoda every day. <laughs> <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. And at the time, I used to be on TV at the same time. And I'm like, hey, um, how, how do you know every single thing about that show? She's on the same time I am. And my and she, my mom like blushed a little and she's like, Well, um, I'm like, Mom, I I know you watch me every day, like you talk about what I'm wearing. And she's like, I tune in right at the top of the show to see what's happening. But <laughs> then I, I switch over because you know, her content really speaks to me. And I'm like, what? Like all this time. And she'd been completely BSing me because I'd be like, you know, what'd you think about that guest at the end or blah, blah, blah? All that time. Oh, I liked him, this and that, meanwhile. Two minutes into the show, once she heard my voice, saw how messy my hair was and my outfit, she was out. Kathy Lee and Hoda were waiting for her.
1: But you knew she was watching. Oh, And you yes, knew she, yes. th- th- that aura was around you. Yeah. My kids have been going through a pretty weird experience, too. My son's four. The baby's one. And when I pop up on TV, mm. which happens occasionally, Ryder used to say, Mommy, why doesn't he wave to me? And so I'd say to him, OK, buddy, I'm going to I'm going to kind of nod you at you, going to give yeah. you a wink, going to give you a wave. And, and that's meant a lot to him. But watching your parents on TV is kind of a surreal thing. Right. And, uh, and watching surreal. your kids must also be a surreal thing. My mother, you know, loves to comment on my tie and my facial hair and and the colors that I wear. Um, but she's also been really, really insightful and she's become a really good coach. Like I think they they help me stay really connected, and and it helps me understand how different generations of people come together. They love Harry, right? He's like, the best. And Kathy Lee is a great example. I I actually went to a wedding at Kathy's house once, which was a totally so my friend Bobby Thomas, who you may know from this building, mm-hmm. got married at Kathy Lee's house, which was another kind of Forrest Gump moment where <laughs> I was getting dressed in a closet basically. Amazing. Had gotten there late. Uh, drove Justin Timberlake's parents up there because they didn't have a ride and then came out kind of flustered and Frank Gifford's standing at the top of the stairs with a dog in his hand behind like this room where he's got his Heisman. And I'm just like, where the fuck am I? Yeah, like, but that's where, like the Kathie circus fuck am I? in all She was so warm and kind yes. and hosting a wedding. But there's a lot of kindness, I think, that surrounds anybody who succeeds. and And you have been incredibly it, successful oh. in a short period of time. But I want to go back to... We started actually at Wall Street around the same time. We're almost the same age. I'm a year older than you. I'm
2: forty four. And
1: I'm forty five. And you started at Credit Credit Suisse in ninety seven. Yes. I started at JP Morgan in ninety nine. Doing what? Investment banking. I was in equity capital markets and you were doing derivatives, right? I was credit Suisse. And you became an MD in eight years.
2: I think shorter than that. Yeah,
1: shorter than that. But you you were in a really it was an intense time.
2: It was a super intense time. You You must have been
1: crushing it. Because then you moved quickly up into other roles. But, so when I started, when, uh,
2: actually, can I ask
1: you when you when you think back on that time, Stephanie? Because I got to tell you, I hated it. Oh, like I my, loved my, it. My my, my my um best days on Wall Street were still worse than my worst days in the army. What? Because I just I hated it, and actually I'd never been treated like shit more. Oh yeah yeah. yeah. In working in on Wall Street at that time than I did in the military. I got treated like shit working at a bank much more than I ever did in the military. I never got – no one ever put hands on me in the Army, really, except to train me. But I had an MD smack me once and say, pay attention to this. This is screwed up. Phone's getting thrown. I mean, some of it's exaggerated. uh, But that time, time, late 90s, Mm pre-9-11, my last day was the week before 9-11. Like I walked out on September 7, 2001, was up for promotion and was like, I'm taking my bonus and I'm out. And they were like, "Oh, but you, you know, you might be moving up." And I was like, "No, nah, I'm ready to go." But two years there for me was actually harder than like six years in the army, just because it wasn't a fit for me. But I appreciated the crash course in business. It was business school at a really great pay. I made more money in my first year than my father ever made in his life, and it was it was a really exciting time to be there. But it was also really dynamic. How did what did you learn
2: from that? I mean, I loved it. And when you look back it. on it
1: now, how did it prepare you for what you're doing now in this moment you're in?
2: I think both jobs are the same. I think every job is about building relationships. And if you can build a relationship and people trust you, not that you have every answer and every solution, but if they trust that you are there to help them and make a positive environment, uh, it's a great time. And so for me, uh, a mistake that I made then that I still make, but I'm really cognizant of it, was being in a rush. So I entered Credit Suisse's training program. I was definitely the least prepared. Uh, I didn't have any sort of finance background. I got into banking because I was living in Europe, studying. I wanted to stay in Europe. I didn't have any money left. Mm. So I wrote letters to people who worked at banks because I knew they had banks around the world. I got a job with Merrill Lynch. They ended up sending me to New York for a summer. And in that summer internship, I had to deliver something onto a trading floor And their fixed income trading floor looks just like a newsroom. And I'm like, I don't know what anybody here does for a living. Plus, it's filled with boys. And I'm like, but this is totally what I'm going to do for a living. And I met two nerds. And I said, if I come in super early and stay late, can you teach me what you're doing? And they were like, yeah. And so I spent the summer at Merrill. I ended up going to Credit Suisse. But, like, I had no experience. And the one bad piece of advice I got was get out of the training program. As soon as you get there, because you rotate to different desks, to right. departments, someone said, get out of the training program because you're going to limit how much you get paid and you're going to be stuck in like a band. Get yourself onto a desk. And I really, you know, if you go anywhere and you're offered to be in a training program, that's like free school. Exactly. Stay there for yeah. two years while there's no accountability. And of course I didn't. So as soon as like we finish the basic program, I sprint out, I get a job on the corporate bond desk and I'm sort of off to the races. The problem was you should spend that two years learning and I didn't. So then I spent the next 14 years, like kind of cheating. Like there was, there were so many basics. There was so much fundamental content that I never learned that I was like, I'm just going to hustle my way through it. And so in banking though, I mean, straight out of the gate, I figured out what are things that they need that they don't have. And I'm going to solve for that. Like from when I was 21, like, I'm going to get all of these nerds restaurant reservations at the hottest restaurants in New York every single Tuesday, Wednesday, (laughs) Thursday. I'm just going to make sure I have a seat at every single one of those dinners, right? Because I'm like, you guys can't, eight dudes can't go to this restaurant. You're going to have to bring me too. So then at 21, I was going to every single client event. And then about a year and a half into it, was when sort of credit derivatives was just being born. And I met like super, super nerds who didn't have access to any of those clients because they were the guys who were kind of creating credit derivatives. And I'm like, if you teach me this, I will give you access to these clients. So they taught it to me. And then I went to the whole sales force, and I'm like, you guys don't even know what this product is. Why don't you let me sell it to your clients? And they were like, fine, we don't care. And then it turned into a business. So it's not, to to me, it's no different from TV. Like when, when in TV or media, In reporting, it's like having a client. You're not gonna rip a source's eyeballs out because then you can never ever go back to that source. But if you develop a relationship with that source, they clearly have a story they wanna tell. You can tell 20 of those stories. They can help you get better and smarter in your content every day. So it's just like banking. Hedge fund clients, they're not getting all their trade ideas and investment ideas from me. But if I can hit a single or a double with them every single day, and if they can trust me to try to solve their problem, that's the same. And no different from TV. Like when I screw up, when I get over my skis, if I'm honest about it, and I can pinpoint now like very clearly on TV when I screw up the most. And it's when I'm the least prepared. It's usually on a Thursday or Friday yeah. when I'm like kind of lazy, I'm kind of tired. Like on those days, fast forward eight hours, and Tucker Carlson's making fun of me that night on what I did that day. And you know what? He's not wrong. He's mm. partially wrong, but like he's I. Also, get... He's
1: also a dick about it. Totally, yeah. but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You
2: know what? It's that's not, on him. It's not fine. That's but the only thing know, but I'll here, disagree with. here's about. the thing yeah. that's on yeah. him. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah, I true. left Bloomberg to come to NBC, Mike Bloomberg said to me, Seventy, you are going to fail in cable news. Really? And I was like, and I and I was like, thanks, Mike. And I said, why on earth would you say that? And he said, because you're too pragmatic, like you're too centrist. He said, in cable news, only the extremes win, all the way to the right or all the way to the left. And I said, no way. And I said, look at you, Mike. I said, look at your success. And he said, what? And I and I said, in politics. And he said, well, I ran for New York City mayor uh, in a totally easy race against a loser. And I put $75 million into my race. And I said, well, you know I don't have $75 million. And there's no losers at NBC, but I'm going to give it a shot. And this goes back to, is is it right that Tucker Carlson's mean or nasty or or a jerk? Maybe he is, but who cares? I'm going to make mistakes on TV. And I'm going to say things or do things in my life that I'm embarrassed by. But if every day I can try to say, I did my best. I screwed up and i'm so proud of myself then that's a good day for me and i I look at people who are putting on shows and going to the extreme and it bums me out
1: but that's why people like you because you're authentic because you're real and, you know, going back to where we started, whether it's taking the dudes out to the to the restaurants or on TV, you're bringing that accessibility. So you're bringing Spring Break and AP Calculus <laughs> together, you know, when you're were when you were on Wall Street. And again, now, and even with us right here, like, I, I didn't think, I thought you might drink the margarita. But I was like, you Baltimore, know what, it's, it's yeah, been kind Baltimore, of a crazy day. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to get, I want to come back to Bloomberg because I think that's insightful. And his response to you is very insightful because I think he's shown powerfully, especially in the last couple of weeks, that he doesn't have a really good feed for what people will respond to especially when it comes to media and that's been maybe one of his biggest blind spots but i want to go well, back to i want to come back to that if i can Stephanie. Yeah. I want, very basic question that i ask everybody when you were growing up in those early days stephanie rule what was your first car
2: a white chrysler lebaron convertible really yes wow and i thought i was very very cool in what it.
1: year do you remember what year it was
2: Um, 1993. I was, I was my high school homecoming queen and I, I didn't turn 17. That's how old you have to be to get your driver's license. Um, I didn't get my driver's license until like I turned 17 at the end of December. And truth be told, I didn't want to be a designated driver. And so I didn't get my license for another six months.
1: <laughs> wow. And was the top white also? <laughs> my colleagues
2: who met me see her sitting here going, I can't believe you just see? said that. You know what? It was a long time ago. Isn't we'll this go. podcast fun, everybody? Yeah, I mean, that was but my rationale. What was
1: the color of the roof? The top? It was a white chrysler a white, top? white
2: convertible with a black top. Wow. Yeah.
1: And and, then, how did and, you, how- and
2: I'm a whore, you know what people have their gifts and yeah. those, I'm I may be the worst driver you've ever met. I eventually got rid of it because I was once driving through the Lincoln Tunnel with the top down and I had three girls in the car with me and somehow I sideswiped the inside of the Lincoln Tunnel and and blew out all the tires on the right side of the car and we were like in the beginning of the tunnel so you can't stop there's no stopping and it was just a hor- i mean we we complete i mean we wrecked the side of the car we made it out the other side of the tunnel but after that um we it was it was that was the last time we saw that car
1: that's a pretty good car story yeah
2: last time we saw it
1: so Let's stay on things connected to the Lincoln Tunnel. And Mm. New York City has become this epicenter of the 2020 race. It has, right? You've had, you know, Gillibrand, and you had Cory Booker across the river, and we've obviously got Trump and Bloomberg and De Blasio and everything else. So, being in this in this building, you've been in many ways in the epicenter of the 2020 race. But this week is nuts. But yeah. in maybe some ways predictable, maybe not. Now as it seems the question was always are the Democrats going to finally stop eating their own? Will there be a Game of Thrones moment where they rally around a Jon Snow? And, and coalesce to fight the evil white walkers okay, on the... Okay, but let everyone me, let keeps saying
2: that. Me, and you know what? Finish. Hold on. Hold on. We wait. ripped on Democrats. My show, my okay. show,
1: my show, my show. Like, I love this because when you're hosting, I have to let you steamroll me, True. right? And this yes. is fun because I've never... I've been on your show so many times, and I'm grateful yes. over the years to have, to have had those opportunities. But don't you
2: think it's mean that, like, Democrats are eating one another... Right, well, Everybody then, complained that Hillary Clinton put the, they put the thumb Democrats on her scale for Democrats are undoubtedly
1: for eating their own, and now you've got Bernie Sanders, who's probably going to be like Xerxes and fight it all the way to the end and not join the clans when they all unite. I think that's a very real possibility. But I've always had a very interesting take on Bloomberg that I don't think folks understood, with the exception of you. If it's Game of Thrones, Bloomberg is not actually a tribe. He's a dragon and everybody in Game of Thrones wants a dragon. And if you have a dragon, it's a powerful asset on the battlefield. And you don't want that dragon to go to the other side. So for all the Democrats who were shitting on Bloomberg all the time, I said, you know what, you may not like him enough, but if he goes to the other side, it's going to be a real problem. Now, this week, the, 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 the campaign has ended. And Bloomberg today. today, Bloomberg has always said that his goal was to defeat Donald Trump. Now, that, I think people who have watched him and seen his strategy and seen his operation know that that meant giving it a shot, watching the numbers, and having an alternate strategy. And the alternate strategy, in my view, seems to be unfolding now, where he's got this massive digital operation, a huge staff, endless resources. If it's a fight, he's the guy with all the guns. And now he said, you know what? I shot the guns. I gave it a good shot. They didn't love me. They didn't respond to me. Here you go, Joe. Here are all the guns. And that's what I think is the X factor right now. And the other dragon being Michelle and Barack. Okay, when they come in, they're going to be the total game changers in a way that nobody else can. But you've been you, you know, Mike Bloomberg, you've been around Mike Bloomberg. I've been a critic of Mike Bloomberg. I've worked alongside him on some issues. But this is a really, really critical moment. So, you've been breaking it down in the news, but can you break down what you see in this landscape and what you think people might not see that you uniquely see because you've been around him, because you have that business background, and because you have a really good feel for that intersection of business and politics and media in a way that nobody else, I think, really Thank does? You.
2: So the Game of Thrones reference is hard for me because to me, I think that show is about sex. So it's making me <laughs> throw up in my mouth that you're referencing all these people. That's the it's gross making margarita. me like super <laughs> gaggy. But away from that. Yes. Um, here's the thing. Mike Bloomberg is an extraordinary leader. Um, from what he's done in City Hall, for what he did at his company. Uh, watching even what went down in the last few weeks was was amazing because you have to remember, the last time Mike lost at anything is when he left Solomon Brothers 40 years ago. Okay. And what did he do? He went out and built a Wall Street adjacent monopoly that made him the 12th richest person on the planet. And for people who don't understand what Bloomberg does, he sells a product that's ridiculously expensive and has. Zero interest or willingness to ever lower the price. After the financial crisis, when banks were like, yo, 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 these terminals cost way too much money. We're about to cancel subscriptions for a lot of them. Sorry, dude. For He's people like, who don't who understand, yeah. old
1: Bloomberg machines, when you and I worked in the yeah. street, the Bloomberg machines were almost like exclusive access to the internet. Correct. It was like basi- I didn't right? have
2: an email address yeah. until uh, until I, until I right. came to work right. here a few years that's ago. How my, that's how you it was, got information. That's how you got It was the
1: premier and, and lone source that the entire industry used for information. About you you communicate. had to use his machine, you had to yeah. use his software, and he, he owned it. Right, it was there's one of the no, first things you learned when you came in yes. the street. They taught you how to use a Bloomberg machine. Correct. Right, there's
2: no competition yeah, for it. Yeah, I Nothing. think
1: and I think that that's really really important because people don't understand how innovative that was and how good at execution yes. it was. Right, it had to work. Right, but and it had to work at the highest stakes for the most demanding clients. In, in a really difficult environment.
2: And he knows exactly how to deliver that. And so yep. Mike's skill, I have never met anyone who has his sort of operational excellence and his, I can't think of anyone who can convene more impressive people than Bloomberg. So I worked in banking and I was always interested in working in television. And uh, it was that I was giving a speech for a nonprofit, uh, a women's group. And after the founder said, women and minorities always get lumped together. But if you take the 50 most powerful women in the world, they don't do that much to help one another up there. But black guys do. And she said, every one of you is senior in your industry. You need to decide what you want to do next. And someone else here has to say, I'm going to get you there. And I said, I've always wanted to work in the media. And a woman there ran HR at Bloomberg. And two days later, she introduced me to Andy Lack, who's not Mike. Mike is in City Hall. Andy's actually here at NBC now. But the whole experience was complete Bloomberg ethos. And I said, I've never worked in television.
1: Sorry. Your phone, that's Bloomberg calling you now. No to, to exactly.
2: like, stop speaking
1: to, to, no, to maybe yeah. offer you a job
2: <laughs> I don't want one I have he's
1: one. scooping up just about everybody there talented in this but, city
2: but it's, that's what he, he convenes yeah. and so they said uh, um, I said I've never worked in television and Andy Lack said you need to be three, he goes there's no more TV presenters he said you have to know the content love the content and have to be great on television and have people want to watch you and I said I don't know if I'm number three but I have number one and two you can pay me nothing but I need you to give me a show and have someone teach me how to do this. And they said, yes. And that's that company. And I start, I got to know Mike better my last year working there. And he, he is a problem solver like no one else, but here's what people had to experience since he decided to run. And I say this in the most complimentary way. It's a little bit like the wizard of Oz with Mike, the Oz that he creates his campaign, all that he does, all that he's done on climate and guns and education, second to none, extraordinary. But when you pull the curtain back and it's just Mike on his own, he's kind of crabby. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he's disinterested. Yeah, that's the magic.
2: And, that's but, the magic. but that's also...
1: It's also the power. One of the it's things the that power. makes
2: him that successful, he's sentimental about nothing, right? A lot of, a, a lot of the mistakes that we make in our careers... We're, we're sentimental, we're emotional, we hang on, he hangs on to nothing. He's the most in the moment present person I can think of. And unfortunately, when you are running for office, it's about connecting. So look what happened. People came out and said to Joe Bi- looked at Joe Biden because they wanted to be comforted. They wanted somebody who cares. And Mike on paper has, and not just on paper, has done extraordinary things. But the way he makes you feel, the answer is nothing. And that translated. And I think what happened last night was really stunning because Mike's number one goal is to get Trump out of office. Right. He looks at Trump and says, our democracy is at risk. He's long term going to hurt our economy. He's going to destroy our environment. If I don't do this, I'll only have myself to blame. And he, he got in at a time when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were soaring and Joe Biden was fumbling and listen, I'm sure he didn't think it was going to turn out quite like this because 2 weeks ago he had amazing momentum. His camp he built an incredible campaign, his camp his team was a machine. I mean, they handed and he him- And was, he
1: was doing it in part because he wasn't in front. Like, the, the magic of Bloomberg, in my view, right, is that he's able to assemble all these assets and assemble, assemble all these tools on a battlefield where he can compensate for the fact that he's not the most charismatic guy on the stage. But and, no and one it,
2: saw that. N- well, he, well
1: he didn't see it. And he didn't want to acknowledge, maybe, or he was stubborn, or maybe he was disconnected, or maybe he just made a bet, right? But, but recognizing, when they ran the three-minute coronavirus ad, What I said was, you know what? Great content. I wish he had paid for somebody else to deliver it because he just doesn't deliver it well. And that was a blank spot that I think he underestimated that really, really hurt him over the last couple weeks, especially. But here's the good part. They knew it,
2: but they underestimated it. And
1: here's the good part, right? In New York, he he is better situated to run things than pretty much anybody. I put this out to – Bernie Sanders supporters and de Blasio supporters. So you can shit on Bloomberg all day right now, but if you're living in New York and coronavirus is hitting, who would you rather have as mayor, de Blasio or Bloomberg? And that's no the Bloomberg. kind of guy that we know in New York can make things work to include his own machine. So the opportunity now is to take himself out of that Wizard of Oz role and put put Biden in it. So to right? me, And this recognizing thing- that Trump is the number one, this is where I really give Bloomberg credit, and I share this. Trump is the number one strategic threat to this country. I think he's the number one strategic threat to this world because he's so insta- instable and the impact that he has. So Bloomberg ran the numbers, did his analysis and said, that's the number one priority. It's the most dangerous thing. I've got to focus on that. And he's been doing it ever since. Now he just has to adjust that machine on the same target and put himself in a different seat and put Biden in front and assemble all those weapons behind him. And that's why Bloomberg gets under trump's skin that's why he was up last night tweeting because he knows he's coming he hears bloomberg's footsteps
2: whole thing just got so much scarier for the president because absolutely you can take the state of virginia and that those are the most important numbers to me what happened there last night because in 2018 mike put an enormous amount of money in the midterm elections and that flipped virginia Flipping Virginia gave Democrats the House. Democrats having the House impeached President Trump in the House. Everybody knows that. Joe Biden spent like a hundred grand on one radio ad in Virginia, and he won. So Mike learned last night. He knows from a year a year ago, his machine gets people elected. Right. He's just not the guy. I think the last two weeks have probably been very hard for him because I'm not saying all he needed to do was carry the ball, but they handed him an extraordinary campaign. And listen, he failed at those But he had to do food.
1: things he'd never done. He's never really run an election where he's had to go shake hands and go to pancake breakfast and run around the city yeah, and, and the work debates. for the votes, it, it right? was the debates. And the debates, you know, he didn't have to scrap it up. He didn't have to have somebody. He kept going down. Every time they came at him, he would respond to their criticism instead of what a normal skilled politician does is bridge and talk about something else, right? Go back to your main talking. He way. failed he got, at the debates. He got sucked in over and over again. And, and, and on a very basic level, he looked inexperienced. For the first time, Mike Bloomberg looked really inexperienced. Having somebody punch him in the face right out of the gate is not something he was used to. And he did not like it, and he did not respond well. But here's my point, Stephanie. I don't think it matters now. I don't think it matters any more than the, the debates mattered for, for Biden in the past or for Kamala Harris, who did well. You can do great in the debates. You can do poorly in debates. That's almost ancient history now. Now, as these forces align on a very new battlefield, I think it's all different. And and Bloomberg, in my opinion, is the most valuable chess piece on the board until Obama comes in.
2: On January 10th, his campaign manager, Kevin Cheeky said to me, Mike will either be the nominee or he will be the most important person To the nominee. 100%. And so that's where he is. So for the president, think about what's happened in the last 24 hours, okay? The administration has said over and over, Democrats are going to tank the economy. They're all a bunch of socialists, okay? Last night, Bernie Sanders certainly didn't have the night he thought he was going to have. I stayed here super late because we were preparing for overnight markets to tank if Sanders soared. Because you're forgetting when a week ago... When Corona first really got markets worried and you saw markets drop, they did also drop because Sanders had done so well in Nevada. Okay, right. right. There was a risk last night that markets were going to drop, which is exactly the president would have loved to have said, see, it's Bernie Sanders. It's not just Corona. So markets don't drop. They can't make the Democratic Socialist argument. The digital operation, Mike's is called Hawkfish, which is the only equal counter to Trump's, is now going to be offered to Biden. And then here's one more thing. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve cut rates, an emergency rate cut. Do you know when we see emergency rate cuts? After 9-11 and the financial crisis. The, one of the main reasons coronavirus has markets tanking is uncertainty. So many questions with no answers. Suddenly, when the Fed who has way more, a lot more information than you and I do, cut rates in an emergency scenario, we could, and I'm not saying we will, tip into recession. So now the president could be in a scenario where he's running against a beloved Democrat with the money machine and the digital machine of Bloomberg, who's quickly overnight been able to pull more and more Democrats under one tent, and the economy could get shaky. Things just got real.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think we also found out that America is not as liberal as a lot of people think. Last night, in my view, was a check on the future of America that's more moderate than I think some people judged. I, you know, People kept saying Bernie was going to be great for turnout. He was. He was great for turnout against him. I think that a lot of moderates came out and were very concerned about what Bernie Sanders represented, especially when you look at the South and how that became a firewall for him, as it did last time, too. But I think that the threat of Bernie Sanders actually mobilized people tremendously. I saw it among my moderate friends, people who are who blue, blue dog Democrats, who were terrified of the prospect of, of Bernie Sanders. In the same way, they're terrified of Trump. So I think we've got this turnout wave that's going to you know, kind of be a crescendo last night, but then crest again when Trump comes. People aren't voting, in my view, as much because of what they care about, but what they're fearing against. And well, that's what I think you saw last night. I think people deeply underestimated how much America did not want Bernie Sanders. He's going to have enclaves where he did strong, he did well, people who love the free shit for everybody idea. But I think he was selling a kind of populist that people are much more jaded by after Trump, right? The idea that you can promise me what I want and it's all going to be easy. Give me somebody to settle it down, to try to reduce the temperature, bring us together, somebody I know. And you've got the, the parallel track of Biden voters are baked in. They love Biden the same way Trump voters love him. No matter what he does, they love Uncle Joe. And I think that that came out last night too. So all that comes together, Stephanie, into a really dynamic battlefield that you're going to be covering every night. But Bernie
2: has woken us up to the fact that we can't just say we don't want a revolution and that's too much because the fact of the matter is there's $1.3 trillion in student debt there's $80 billion in medical debt in this country. So this isn't just people going from, you know, Burning Man to Coachella <laughs> saying, woo, I want free stuff. It's people who are saying the American dream doesn't work for me. 100%, but you and have to, you so I'm also, as, as a leader, whole... you
1: also have to show how the American dream beco- can become more possible for those Correct. people, right? And and saying that all the, the student debt's going to be gone is like saying, you know, you're going to wake up tomorrow, we're going to, revolution is, is a very, is a very radioactive word. Yeah, right? When you hear, Revolution. You hear socialism. Those are powerful words. That I people, don't know why democratic people, socialism people,
2: doesn't just get a new brand. 100%. A hundred percent. Remember when Democrats used to love bad.
1: liberal and now they're progressive, yes. right? Liberal became a bad word. Now it's progressive. But the rebranding of these ideas, I think, is critical. Some of these ideas are absolutely valid. I, I share so many of the initiatives that these that people who have supported Sanders want, but there has it has to be realistic, right? And and the idea that we're going to get rid of all student debt while the Republicans continue. Continue to exist in America is Crazy. as un, is as unrealistic as saying you're going to build a wall. Like it, it, but it sounds great, and people love the sale. They want to believe it's true, and that's why I think you're going to see more moderate voters, more experienced voters, more sophisticated voters, more diverse voters are going to come toward Biden over time and but, against Trump. But let me ask you to pivot if I can. But
2: let me just say please. one thing: both Bernie and Trump do something really important. Yeah, they do genuinely see that forgotten voter. And but that, they
1: also see the anger, like that's. But what yes,
2: but I'm saying I think it's important, right? When when yeah. the president does his State of the Union, yeah. and lots of the things he says aren't true, and I'm sitting there like scrambling it down. This is not true. He knows it's not true, yeah. but. But that's the problem. But hold there's, on, there's when no but after says, that, right? Like that's my blue problem. collar boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes that person feel seen and heard. A hundred percent. Because Hillary Clinton wasn't the first person to not go to Western Pennsylvania in late August. Democrats took those votes for granted for years. So let that forgotten voter be a wake-up call that they need to count.
1: Right. A hundred percent. But don't lie to them. Don't sell them bullshit. Right? Because that's the thing. I see you. I hear you. Now, when you get to that point and you say to them, you're angry. I see you. I hear your anger. Let's talk about what's possible. Yes. Right. That is very important because you don't want to disenfranchise people even even further with just lying to them, selling them shit that's not possible. Right. And here's the difference for me. Right. Sanders and Trump, in my view, sell a lot of dreams to people. The difference is Trump can actually get them done legislatively. If Bernie Sanders was elected, the Democrats aren't going to support half of his shit. So the which is exactly what happened when he was chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee happened throughout his career. Big, grandiose ideas. And then he would cry about everybody voting against it. Well, that was the reality. Right. The reality was people were going to vote against it. And you can either compromise and get something done or dig in and get nothing done. And that's what I think people people were concerned about who were most sophisticated and understanding how government works. But I want to pivot into asking you. Joe knows how. But I'll just say he knows
2: how. Mike Bloomberg, when he kept getting pushed on stop and frisk, at no point did he pivot to look at my Greenwood initiative. Which is the only African-American economic empowerment plan. He actually had has many plans. He just didn't get him if to the you're table. explaining you're losing
1: and over and over again, he was explaining stop and frisk, explaining stop and frisk, instead of saying, hey, we dropped the murder rate. Or saying, hey, we kept the subways running. Or hey, we kept the garbage going, right? Like things that, that he couldn't figure out how to pivot, but you have been great at figuring out how to pivot. So you will appreciate that I need to pivot into a question that is core to this show that I ask of all our guests. Stephanie Rule, what makes you angry?
2: Ooh. Lack of effort. It's my number one. So effort to me is everything, right? I mean, this goes back to what my mom says to me every day, right? You don't have to be the smartest. You don't have to be the best. It doesn't have to be the most expensive. You don't have to get an A. I just need to know that you tried your hardest, that you gave it your all. For me, there are three things in this world that we have no control over. Time, health, and weather. Everything else is risk management. And that's how I look at everything. So if I'm giving, not that my time is more valuable than yours, all of our time is valuable. But if we're here, if we're doing this, if I'm not waking up and kissing my babies in the morning and picking them up at school, then we better be giving it. Like Then there's no reason for me to be here. We have to leave it all on the field every single day. And if we fail, that's okay. But effort is everything. And people who are punching the clock and mailing it in, I really need them to get off my team.
1: Mm, I love that. M- my football coach, one of my mentors, a guy named E.J. Mills, Amherst College, shout-out coach, uh, used to say— attitude- You went to Amherst? Yeah. Go figure, right? Did
2: Rich Willard go to college? Yeah, you? he was my quarterback. Oh, my God, my—he was
1: He was my quarterback. Rich Willard
2: and I—I I mean, Rich Willard is full-on hot. He was also the best
1: quarterback in our school history. He was my quarterback. I was the tight end. Do you know back in the
2: day, Rich Willard used to wear- We're going to talk about Rich Willard and how hot he is on my podcast. Rich Willard used to wear a sugar daddy costume every single year for Halloween in New York City. Like the cheesiest box costume you could ever see. And just see what he could pick up. And every year, it was a hotter and hotter girl. I love Rich Willard.
1: That's amazing. (laughs) He
2: lives in Charleston, South Carolina- you ready for like his yeah. morning workout? He water skis every day. How cool is that? I love. I mean, Rich Willard the best.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He would have done a lot better on the debate stage than Mike Bloomberg.
2: No, he would not. He absolutely no, no. would not. No, he would definitely he absolutely not. Absolutely would have. Rich Willard. Right. No, so no, so no, we'll Maybe we'll do he a charity not. event at not. some
1: point. We'll not. have he Rich not. Willard debate Mike Bloomberg. Did <laughs> um, not. Mike Bloomberg definitely win would not win on the hot scale, but Rich Willard blast from the past. See how small this world is, right? Uh, yeah. So anyway, our coach was a guy named EJ Mills. He'd he say attitude and effort is key. And really? and Rich Willard and I were uh, about a minute and forty seven seconds away from an undefeated season in our senior year. He was wow. an exceptional quarterback. Great guy. He's so hot. And so hot. I won't disagree. <laughs> very hot. Very hot. Okay. So this helps me pivot into, we're the, have in, to into, like into the next question. Of Rich Willard. This is this is the beauty You're Googling of Googling him right
2: now. So hot.
1: Yeah. He was he was hot. Isn't he? He's absolutely so hot. hot. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. If you
2: can't find him, he works at Seaport Securities in Charleston, South Carolina. We're blowing this guy's
1: life up right now. The subject of of a podcast. Okay, so I've got to ask you, because you have to go on TV and talk about things other than Rich Willard.
2: Um,
1: Stephanie Rule, question I ask of everyone, because this show is about about anger, but also about channeling it into positive outcomes. Yeah. And that's I think a theme of the what's happening of in this moment.
2: The
1: best is energy. 100%. 100%. And you have a very unique energy and every time I talk to someone I want to talk to someone who is inspiring, important and iconic. And you're all those things now. Oh like you God. really are a leader in this country that's shaping what the country's been, what it is and what it will be. Um, but you're also helping us break it down. I was hoping we could get into family. I was hoping we could get into the secrets of your success because you're you're a great American success story, especially how you pivoted from, from one career into another at a time when the country needs you right now to help break it down.
2: If I just say if I had a secret yeah. with regard to success, yes. it's there's no such thing as an ugly truth. There's just your truth. So if you can right. if you can push shame away, if you can push embarrassment away and just own your truth you have a lot better chance of being success, successful, right? You know Instead, like, we're, we're putting on such a show or we're a fraud and we're, we're hiding these secrets because we don't want people to see what we're insecure about or what we're weak at. What if you just showed it? What if you just said it? If you owned your weaknesses or your embarrassments, then they're not embarrassing anymore because you own them.
1: I, I love that. I love that. And that's why I think you're a role model for so many people, too. Thank um you. Especially in this environment that's combative and complicated and dynamic. They they
2: can't get you, right? They want to humiliate you and get you down. They can't if you wear your flaws.
1: Dude, I I appreciate that very much. And I think anyone listening, no matter what their background is, will appreciate that. But let me ask you another question that I ask of all our guests Stephanie Rule, what makes you happy? This is the quietest you've ever been in any of my experiences of being around you.
2: What makes me happy? Waking up every day. Opportunity. Being American. Being able to afford my life. Being able to take care of my parents. Seeing my kids thrive. Seeing my kids with my husband. Uh, Watching people who work with me and for me go on and do amazing things with their lives. Um, What makes me happy? Building and maintaining real friends. It makes me so happy to reconnect with people that are doing really well. It makes me so happy to see people I believe in being successful and watching people not take from one another like we're getting to a place I think where in my own career when I was in my 20s I had such sharp elbows Mm. and in the short term it was great because you could be so successful but you're successful standing alone and I think that winning alone I it's fine because you're like standing on a podium and you're going this is great I'm the best but it's lonely and then when you lose alone, it's it blows. And if you can change your mindset and really create a team mindset, then winning on a team is way more fun because then when you lose and you know you're gonna lose, somebody else will pick you up. So what makes me happy is to create an environment where we're all honestly trying to have a good time and then even when we're losing, we're kind of laughing our way through it because I've been on the other side that was such a snake pit. And even if you're the biggest snake that's winning, you're still a fucking snake. Mm. And I've been the other. And so I'd rather not be.
1: Mm. Thank you for that. In the, in the army, we used to say, you all we all bond in the suck. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, you need that continuity and that teamwork. But I think you, you bring that spirit to everything you do. And I'm I'm grateful for your friendship, for your leadership, for your inspiration, for your tenacity. I think, especially in a moment like this, you're you're a, you're a leader of the moment right now. Like today, this week, with the intersection of Bloomberg and technology and business, and now you're the senior business correspondent here at MSNBC. Mm. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, but I'm grateful for your friendship. And the final aspect of our show is the giving of the gifts yes. because you are n- uniquely prepared. But I don't think you're prepared for this.
2: Oh my um, goodness! It's not
1: a Rich Willard T-shirt, but you go on right for the liquor. I go. Wow! So everybody gets. I'll help you with this.
2: Now that I've said that, drinking red. Wine makes you feel like a human yeah, cat and about not, to open a bottle of it. It's
1: not red wine. So we always pick um, a
2: so wow.
1: An American made whiskey. Love and it. that is Fort, Fort ha- Hamilton. Fort Hamilton double bourbon. and double barrel. Double barrel. Whiskey. And uh, you're I thought about you. And the fact that you're coming both barrels all the time.
2: People say that to me all the time, and I don't. I never know what that means. It means
1: you're you're, you're bringing it. Uh, you're bringing. People it. have said that and to me forever. Yeah. Like,
2: I'm like, I don't know why that didn't go well. And people are like, well, you came with two barrels. You came at me. It means two you're not barrels. holding back, and uh, you're not
1: holding back, and it's made in Brooklyn. It, Fort Hamilton is the historic place, you know, here military go. site here. And so 7, I thought it'd 1, be 8. great for you when you very
2: excited about it. By the
1: way, you did finish the margarita, which I, I think is awesome. I did. did. You didn't answer salt or no salt normally. Salt. Yeah. Salt. Okay. Salt. And then you've got some gear. Ang- Angry. Made by um, the veterans Very of Oscar soft. Mike, 100% made in the USA.
2: Where is it made made?
1: In Chicago. The, guys, the guys are in Chicago, uh, made by veterans, and it's super comfortable.
2: Did you have your wife source it? She's in fashion.
1: No, but you know my wife, and you know Karen, and they are massive yeah. fans of yours, but they, they approve okay. of this message.
2: Wow, I love it. Yeah, I'm glad Blue you like Blue and it. red, because you're yes. keeping it real. Absolutely. Wow, and peeps?
1: Yes, and here's the final question. The Rorschach test of our show. We started this show around Easter of last year. Every single guest we've ever had has has made a choice. Stephanie rule they have three colors, blue, pink, and yellow. Which color of peeps would you choose and why?
2: Pink, because who doesn't like hot pink? And uh before eat I wouldn't eat it like this. You did I'd, it with
1: like the head pop there you too. Go. Yeah. Uh,
2: I'd go with pink, because it's a hot pink, and I'd freeze them. Cause if you've ever had frozen peeps, Ooh. they're delicious.
1: I yeah. love that. That's yeah. an insight that we've never there you had go. before.
2: Or for a quick science project to do at your mom's house with your kids, when you put one in a microwave for, like, 40 seconds, it, like, mutates into, like, a monster. So I recommend that, too.
1: That's amazing. There you go. You, you continue some, to give, give us little... amazing gifts of, 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 of energy and positivity and insight.
2: There you go. So, so you can freeze a peep. You can microwave a peep. And uh, if you do it all after throwing down this... Fort Hamilton it'll make it even more exciting
1: amazing <laughs> you're going to keep it exciting you're going to bring spring break and AP calculus to NBC and MSNBC for many years to come I'm going to try but I'm you're try. a really really inspiring voice and I'm grateful that you spent so much time especially with all going on thank you right now this week um, and we're looking forward to seeing you continue to come with both barrels
2: thank you you too thank you together, together we rise
1: together ladies and gentlemen the great and powerful Stephanie Rule
2: from deep inside
1: me. 30 Rock We really are.